So Psalm 22, morning. And now we actually went over the psalm for Easter last year. And I thought maybe just skipping it, telling you guys, okay, go listen to the podcast that's on there. But, you know, it's just too wonderful of a psalm to just skip over and say, go listen to it on a podcast. Let's look at it together and let's just see how um, glorious God's word is to us. Um, Let's actually go to, we'll start in Matthew 27, though. So put your finger in Psalm 22. Let's go to Matthew 27, because Matthew really, he just goes right along with Psalm 22 and his description of the cross. You know, I don't know if he actually meant it that way. The Holy Spirit just guided that, you know, how that all worked out. But that's, that is how it works out. So, um, Psalm, or, uh, sorry, Matthew 27. We're going to start at verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So that prophet is David, speaking in Psalm 22. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sambachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. All right, let's go back to Psalm 22. So you're going to pick out a few places where this is just fulfilled to the T as Jesus is on the cross, as we're going through Psalm 22 here. Now Psalm 22, it's written by David about a thousand years before Christ comes. A thousand years before Christ comes. And you think of, what, what, how do you know that this is the word of God? That what we have is inspired by God. How do you know? Okay, there's an acronym. It's called MAPS. And uh, so you have um, manuscript evidence. Okay, you have all these manuscripts all over the world. God's preserved them, you know, preserved them through thousands of years and everything like that. You have archaeological ed- evidence. And then you have predictive prophecy. And predictive prophecy is, I think, is like God's signature on his word saying, this is from me. I have told you beforehand the things that are going to come to pass so that you may know that he is telling the truth, that he is who he says he is, that the word of God is what God says it is. 
And then I can't remember what S stands for, but I'm just going to say scripture testifies of itself. I was thinking about this in the car on the way over. And it does, because how many times do you see, thus says the Lord? Or in uh, 2 Timothy, for all scripture is inspired by God, right? It's given by inspiration of God, breathed out by God. And so scripture testifies of itself. And then you also have, like I said before, the preservation of the scripture. How could any book stand up to the bad preaching that happens Sunday after Sunday after Sunday all over the world? And I don't mean just here. <laughs> I mean really all over the world, people manipulating it and people trying to destroy it. There are probably billions of books that we don't know of today. And yet the Bible, one of the most um, warred against books in human history, still stands. It's still being preached all over the world, right? We're still giving copies out everywhere we go. It's awesome. And so here we have predictive prophecy. And you do have David speaking of something that he's going through. But if it's only of David, then he's poetically exaggerating, right? Everything that's going on. But the New Testament says this is speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, and what he would go through. And so we know it's not just speaking of David, which does have that historical context, but it's speaking of Christ who was to come in David's day. So let's look at the title. It says, To the Chief Musician, Set to Deer of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. Now, Deer of the Dawn, um, ancient Jews saw this as an idiom for the Shekinah glory of God. You know, you think, deer of the dawn. What happens when a dawn, a dawn, a deer goes out and wakes up? Probably one of the first things they're going to do is get a drink, right? And also, what happens every morning that deer wakes up, sitting by a river or something, or wherever it is, it's got to be a moment of praise, right? If that animal has the capacity to do so. Because it didn't get eaten. <laughs> you know, it woke up. And so I, I don't know, maybe this kind of points to the resurrection too. The deer of the dawn, the morning that Jesus Christ arose. You know? But it says in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. So look, what did Jesus cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He spoke it in Aramaic. Right? Here it would be in Hebrew. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? So in the historical context with David, I mean, imagine David for years running from Saul or from Absalom, from his enemies, going through various trials. Or imagine yourself going through trials, and it just seems like, Lord, are you ever going to show up? Why have you forsaken me? Why is this going on? Why do you not, not sense your presence why does it seem like you're so far from helping me, like you're never going to come? Why does it seem like that? I know you are the living God. I know you are the one true God who is omnipresent, who is immense, who loved me, who died for me, who sent his spirit to live inside of me, and yet I do not perceive your presence. Have you ever cried that out? I think probably we, we all have. We have those times when it's just like, you know, they're like mountaintops. We're just like with the Lord, you know. We, we see his favor in our lives. But then we do. We come into the valley. And it's like, Lord, are you ever going to show up again? Why have you forsaken me? And then imagine Jesus on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God who has had perfect fellowship with the Father from eternity past, has this moment where he cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? See, forsaken, so that we wouldn't have to be? What is hell? Hell is a separation from God's goodness, from his love. The only thing experienced in hell is his wrath and justice. But Jesus had never been apart from the Father. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, my God, I cry into the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, Lord, I don't even sleep. I just cry out to you constantly. 
Constantly, it's like this never-ending flood of prayers and tears. And then he says in verse 3, But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So look what he says, but you are holy. Lord, I've been crying and crying and crying, but you are holy. So he points to his character. God, you're holy. You're holy. You're perfect. God's holiness is his perfections, his separation from all things. You know, he alone is God. That he alone is truly good, is love, is eternal. I mean, just put his attributes there. He's holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel. And look what he says. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. You delivered them, but me? I'm here, I'm here, I'm crying out to you. You, you hear my voice day and night. You see my tears and my cries day and night. And yet... Where are you? You're nowhere to be found. But they trusted in you, and you delivered them. Can you imagine David as he's praying this? Thinking of all the times God had delivered Israel. I mean, think back to the Exodus. You know, the ten plagues. And then they they march out like an army with joy, and all the Egyptians are giving them their gold and their jewelry and all all these things, and they, they go out of there. And then they come to the Red Sea. And it's blocking their way. And then Pharaoh and his army comes up behind him to slaughter them. And it says, and Moses cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. And what happened? Hopefully we know the story if you've seen the movie, you know. know? The sea parts and they march through on dry ground. And then when they all get across, when the last Israelite is across, what happens? The Armies of Egypt are falling and their chariot wheels are falling off and everything like that. And the water closes in on them. Lord, you've saved them. What about me? You've done such great works in the past. What about now? How about Joshua? In the book of Joshua, he leads Israel's armies across the Jordan River, to take over the land of Israel? The first place they come, Jericho, city with great walls, right? What happens? Okay, let's just go march around the city. Okay, we're not going to fire a shot or do anything. Let's just go march around the city. Yeah, blow trumpets. Yeah, blow the shofar. You know, which isn't, I don't even know if it's like that great of a trumpet. Now, And the walls of the city fall down? I mean, just imagine, Lord, you've done such great things in the past. What about now? Or looking forward from David's day, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You know, they go in and they come out not even smelling like smoke. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Have you ever thought, man, if I really trust the Lord on this, I'm going to be ashamed? I'm going to be put to shame. If I really follow God's word, I'm going to be put to shame. If I really wait on the Lord, I'm going to be put to shame. Unfortunately, we probably have. But that should not be our thinking at all. That is the, so my family and I, we're trying to move out to Golden here. We want to minister to our neighbors. We're waiting on a house here, and it's impossible. I mean, you look at the real estate and everything. I mean, you can't find anything for a reasonable price, you know, and, you know, I don't make a lot of money. I'm going to have to, like, write some books and, you know, wear a pinstripe suit or something, but, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Like the TV evangelist. (laughs) And, um, you know, but just on our, well, pins, yeah, I actually have kind of, well, it's, it's got stripes on it a little bit. You can't really see them that well. You know, it's my Marion and Barion suit. Um, that's what my father-in-law calls it anyways. And he has the exact same suit. 
we didn't go together. You know? And my wife's always like, I married my dad, great. <laughs> but um, we're trying to get out here, and it's just, it's like physically, like just by reason, it's impossible. You know, I had put bids on other houses that were outside of Golden, and I just felt like I was so disobedient. Like I was not setting ourselves up where the Lord wanted us to be. And so I was praying, Lord, please don't let him take our bid because <laughs> we don't want to tell him, yeah, never mind. We don't, want, we don't want your house. It's an ugly house anyways. No. But um, I do not believe that if we trust the Lord, if we wait on him, that we're going to be put to shame. You know? And I call on God. You know, the Puritans, they would always talk about taking God to court, a lot like Job, you know. Lord, this is what you said in your word. You say you're faithful, so I'm putting my trust in it. So if you don't, I'm going to take you to court. That's the kind of language they spoke. You know, it seems kind of harsh and blasphemous to us, but I don't think it is because God is faithful. He will prove himself faithful time and time again. And what do we do? We, 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 something happens. We're in a trial, and the Lord shows up and delivers us from whatever it is and how, whatever way he desires to. And what do we say? Okay, Lord, I'm never going to complain again. I'm never going to doubt you again. I'm never going to do any of that again. And then what happens? It comes around again. Oh, Lord, you don't love me. Just kill me now. And we stop trusting and we're full of fear and, you know, it's, it's, it shouldn't be that way. And we need to come back to verses like this. They trusted and you were, you were not ashamed. And so the, the psalmist is pleading with God, saying, they trusted you and were not ashamed. I'm trusting in you. Am I going to be put to shame? Look what he says, verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. So first off, I'm a worm. Let's just take it for what it says right there. I am a worm. I'm not a man. I'm just, I'm just a worm to be crushed, to be stepped on. And this is actually a specific worm. It's the tola. It's actually called the um, crimson caucus or the scarlet worm is what it's called. And in uh, Exodus chapter, I think it was 26, yeah, 26 verse 1, it shows that they were to make um, red dye. But the word for red in the Old Testament is tola. This worm, I am a worm and no man, I am a worm. This is the worm that they would crush and get the red dye for the tabernacle to dye the, 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 um, the tent. Very interesting. You know how this worm does it? This worm, when it's going to have a baby, attaches itself to a tree. And then it creates this cocoon over itself, which is bright red. And then um, after it has its babies, its babies stay in there and actually feed on the mother's body. And then they leave, and then that red... Um, uh, cocoon in three days flakes off and blows off in the wind. But if you were to scrape it off a tree, you know what it looks like? It looks like blood. It looks like a blood-spattered tree. I would have had pictures today, but we don't have a, um, a bulb in that, I guess. The lamp's bad. So, um, But you should imagine I'm saying this. I'm a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Wasn't that what we just read in Matthew? The same thing. But instead of since he delights in him, it says since he is the son of God. Since he said he's the son of God, let's see if God comes and rescues him but they're shooting at the lip. They're making faces at him. They're, they're disgusted in him. They're ridiculing him. You 
And then it says, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So look what he does. He prays according to his position with God. I've been yours since before I was born. You made me trust while I was on my mother's breast. But from the womb. Do you know that Jesus Christ never had to be converted to God? From the moment he was conceived and from eternity past, he was God's, the Father's. All things the Father does is for the Son. Jesus never had a sin nature. There was never a moment where he he said, I have to repent of my sins. From the moment he was born, from before he was born, in his mother's womb, God was his God. And he trusted him. He trusted him. Look what he's saying. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've trusted you since I was born. And he says, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. There is none to help. Nobody's going to help him. He's on that cross, and who is going to come to his aid? Who is going to come to his aid? There is nobody. His disciples have fled from him, right? What do his disciples do? They're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Roman soldiers come up, and Peter gets real bold for a moment, pulls out his sword, cuts off the high priest's servants here, and then what do they do? They scatter. There's none to help. Only John's there at the cross, and the women are looking on from a distance. Who's going to help him but God? Unfortunately, I think that's one of the best places we can be. To where none can help but the Lord. So that he can show his faithfulness to us. So he can show his grace, his mercy. I hate it when I feel like there's no help, when it's hopeless. But then we look to God and we say there's always hope in him. There's always hope in him. Look at verse 12. Now we have, I believe, the experience of the cross. So can you imagine Jesus thinking this and going through this um, throughout verse 21 from verse 12 here? He says, Many bulls haven't have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. So Bashan, there's another place I was going to have a picture, a map. You know, I was going to follow in Andy's footsteps here. Since he always shows maps, he's real into geography and stuff. But um, it's helpful. Bashan is the area right around the Galilee. If you were to um, look at a map, it's to the east. Or if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can look at it. Um, I don't know if you'll have Bashan there. Mine does. It's under political regions of Palestine. And um, it starts down just above Gilead and goes all the way up to Mount Hermon. And so that's Bashan. And you have the Golan Heights are part of it. It's actually a pretty big area. Caesarea Philippi is a part of it, which we'll get into in a minute. But I want you guys to go to Psalm 68. Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, we're going to see Bashan here. But this Bashan is a place where they had these huge cows and huge bulls Huge goats, because the land it actually means fruitful. Bashan means fruitful in Hebrew. And um, it's also a place where they believed these bulls were actually demon-possessed or demonic. And so look at verse 15 in Psalm 68. It says, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. Now, God in Hebrew is Elohim. Okay? When you see Im at the end, 
That's like putting an S. It's plural. Right? When it's speaking of the one true God, it's a, it's a um, unified plural or a majestic unity. Okay? And so it could speak of the one true God, you know, who is triune, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it could also speak of lower gods, false gods. All right? Or maybe even demons. You know, that poses gods. And so read it this way. And um, some of this I get from a guy, his name is Michael Heiser. And uh, he's a uh, scholar in residence for Logos Bible Software. And so he actually says this as well. He says, a mountain of gods is the mountain of Bashan. So a mountain of gods. Okay, and we're gonna, I'm going to prove this even further as we get into the book of Matthew. A mountain of gods is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which the Lord desires to dwell in. I'm sorry, this is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. And so we know God speaking of here in this verse is Yahweh, Lord. All capitals there in your Bible. That means it's the Hebrew Tetragrammaton. Y-H-W-H, which is where we get the, the name Yahweh or Jehovah um, from. And so what is it saying there? The, the Lord is going to take this place. The Lord is going to conquer this, and all you false gods are going to be gone. Because look what it says. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them in Sinai, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You left captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. He's going to take this place over, this mountain of Bashan. Now I want you guys to go to uh, Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, first book of your New Testament. Look at verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. And it says this. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So Caesarea Philippi, there in Bashan. Caesarea Philippi is on a mountain. And in this place, we were there in Israel. And um, when you go up there, this is actually where the gates of Hades are. Okay, it's this cave, and there's like a river. And what they would do, they would throw like a sacrifice in there after they had killed it. And if the blood came out the other side, that means that the sacrifice had been rejected. If blood doesn't come out into the river, that means the sacrifice was received. But there in Caesarea Philippi, they had carvings all over the place with all these different gods. And it was to the god Pan and to these, all these other disgusting demonic gods. Okay? And they would worship, in, uh, worship them in abhorrible ways. But so Jesus asked them, who do you, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so when he's asking them that, it's in the midst of all these other gods. Okay, just imagine that. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So remember, the gates of Hades are right there. So he's pointing, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples so that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So speaking of Bashan here, it's like all these demons are surrounding Jesus at the cross, thinking they have him. Okay, These bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. 
They gape at Mawir with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. This is the demonic host coming against Christ while he's on the cross. Right? Wanting to devour him and destroy him. Saying, ah, we've got him now. Prophecy is not going to be fulfilled. God's never going to take Bashan away from us. But what does Jesus say there in Matthew? The gates of Haiti will not prevail. Right? So let's move on. I am poured out like water, verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. So first off, I'm poured out like water. When the spear was inserted into Jesus' side, what came out? Blood and water. Also, just speaking of his strength. I'm poured out like water. There's nothing in me that can hold myself up. Can you imagine being on the cross? So to be on the cross meant your bones are out of joint because they have stretched you out to put the nails into your hands. The only way you can breathe out is by pressing yourself and lifting yourself up on that cross so you can breathe out because you die of asphyxiation. When, the, when they decided that the sun was going to go down, they wanted to kill him, what did they do? They came and broke the legs of the two who were crucified with Jesus. They broke their legs so they could no longer push, out, push up with their legs and exhale. Now they're just going to die of asphyxiation. Okay? When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. They inserted the spear, plunged it into his side, and out came blood and water. It says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. Now, I think this is kind of interesting. And um, In mythology, you have this metal called animantium. Anybody, does that sound familiar to anybody? Adamantium. Okay, why does it sound familiar? Yes, okay, the superhero Wolverine has an antimantium skeleton, which is unbreakable, okay? The knives that come out of his hands are adamantium. So they've really just taken that from the mythology. The mythology was the antimantium was this steel that could not be broken or anything like that. The only way to destroy it was to boil it in blood, and then it would melt. Okay, that is gross. Real pagan. But I was just kind of thinking about that. And what has, what has melted our hearts? The fact that Jesus' heart was melted within him. That melts the sinner's heart to know that our God, the one true God, the one who loves us so much that he died for us, that his heart was poured out like wax, right? Is melted within him. That melts the sinner's heart. Our hard hearts, right, which cannot be melted down by anything, which cannot be pierced with anything, right? Our hard hearts that revile God and hate God have been melted down, melted down so they're now soft and they're pliable for the Lord to, to, to use and to guide. And so what, what is it when you're born again? When you're born again, God's given you a new heart. He's removed your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He's given you a heart of flesh. And now your desires are for what? To rebel against God? No. When you're a, when you're a new believer, when, you're, when, you're, when your desires are to rebel against God, it breaks your heart now. It breaks your heart. And you say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Say, Lord, I'm sorry I sinned against you. Lord, I'm sorry I've been walking in this way. I'm sorry I have not been treating my wife well. I'm sorry I've been treating my husband well in a way that glorifies you. I'm sorry I haven't been raising my kids up in the, in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord. I'm sorry that my mouth has been vile. I'm sorry that my heart's been so hard against your word. You see, his heart has melted ours. His spirit has melted our hard hearts and changed them. He's given us a heart of flesh and he's guided us with the spirit. I heard this from a, another preacher. 
So I'm going to use this illustration on you guys. I'm totally stealing it, just so you know. Okay, that was my disclaimer. But imagine a husband, and he's going to work. He's late for work. He's got his hands full of all his papers, his briefcase. You know, we don't really carry briefcases because we have phones now. But he's got all this stuff, and his wife says, oh, before you leave, can you take out the trash? And he just whips around and says, woman, what are you talking about? I'm late. Can't you see that I'm... I've dropped my papers now. I'm going to be even more late. And you're trying to stop me to take out the stupid trash? And then he goes off and he's completely justified. He's completely justified. Yeah, that old teacher, she's never going to ask me to take out the trash again when I'm working so hard. I'm trying to put food on the table and doing all this. Right? And he goes home and he, or goes to work and he's fine all day long. He comes home and he's still just bitter and, you know, ugh. Don't ever ask me to do that again. And he's totally justified in his own eyes. But then that man gets saved. He comes to know Jesus Christ as his Lord, his Savior. His heart has been melted. Right? And so the same thing happens again. He's got all his stuff in his, his hands. He kisses his wife goodbye. He walks out. This time his wife says, can you please take out the trash? And he whips around. Don't you see that I'm busy, that I'm trying to get to work and I'm going to be late and you want me to take out the trash and he reviles her? And he goes out and he's, he realizes, but this time, every time, every word that he said, he knew it was wrong. This time, the Holy Spirit's convicting him of his sin. And as he's walking out to his car, he's trying to buck up against it. He's trying to put it off. He gets to work and he still feels terrible that he just yelled at his wife. And he's still trying to buck up against it. And he's thinking, okay, just after this is done, I'll call her and everything. Maybe he can't even make it to his meeting. And he says, guys, I'm sorry, I gotta, I gotta go for just a few minutes. And he calls his wife and he repents and he asks her for forgiveness, tells her he loves her. That's the difference. You know, sometimes we just fail and fail and fail, but there is the conviction in our hearts that we have not done what, was, what is right. Our hearts have been melted. I remember sinning after I became a believer and just thinking, oh my God, please help me. Please forgive me. Please don't let me do that again. And he says, my strength is like a potsherd, verse 15. A potsherd is just a broken piece of pottery that's been sitting out in the sun and it's brittle. It's dried up. It doesn't take much for it just to fall apart. My strength is, like a, is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Can you imagine on that cross the dehydration that would take place? The dehydration. I bet he wanted that wine mixed with gall so bad, but the moment he tasted it, he's like, no, I cannot. I have to experience all this. All the pain, all the suffering, all the punishment that sinners deserve, I am going to experience it all. There is no relief in hell. So Jesus didn't take any relief on that cross. He says, you have brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You know, there's a big debate whether or not Psalm 22 speaking of the crucifixion. Because again, crucifixion wasn't developed until 500 years after David's time. 500 years. It was invented by the Persians and then perfected by the Romans. 500 years. And it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And so you have different, just like the New Testament, you have different um, manuscripts, different texts, you know, thousands of them. And so what we have here is from the Masoretic manuscripts. And many of them, the majority of them, actually say, like a lion, instead of they pierced my hands and my feet. It says, my hands and my feet, like a lion. And the thought is maybe the, hand, the paws are tied up and he's being carried on a stick, you know, or something like that. But here's the, the kicker. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate Christ, predate um, the New Testament, or the oldest manuscripts we have, say, they've pierced my hands and my feet. The Jewish targums, which were used for teaching, say, which were also predate, and they were developed by Jews, not by Christians, say they have pierced my hands and my feet. 
the um, Vulgate, they've pierced my hands and my feet. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, put together by 70 rabbis, they pierced my hands and my feet. So that's why in most texts you'll see, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Now when somebody comes up to you and says, this psalm is not talking about Jesus, and you know, you're trying to you know, defend the Bible, you say, well, now you guys have some, some fuel for that. Yeah, they're really close. The Hebrew words are very close. Could be, could be, yeah, it could be. Now, we do see that in manuscripts from time to time where a scribe is kind of messed up. The Jews were very careful, you know. And just to say that the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the oldest, I mean, because most of the Hebrew manuscripts that we have are much more recent, you know because they would destroy old manuscripts, the Jews would. So that way, if there was a smudge or some of the reading couldn't be read, it wouldn't end up in the transmission to another manuscript. So they would, you know, the theory is, or the history is that they would take it and bury it, you know, that manuscript, after they had copied it down. So they were very, very careful. But so... Again, for dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Who are the wicked? At the cross. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the Jewish leaders, hating Jesus Christ, wanting him dead, and they pierced his hands and his feet. The Romans, they pierced his hands and his feet. And it says, I can count all my bones, they look and stare at me. So there's actually two ways to kind of look at that. I can count all my bones. I mean, imagine the dehydration. The, how gaunt he would be after being whipped and crucified and made to carry his cross. He was so weak that they had to give, give it to Simon of Cyrene to carry it the rest of the way to help him. But it says, I can count all my bones. You can just see all of his bones sticking out there. They look and stare at me. So either one, his bones are looking and staring at me like they're just out. They're out for the world to see. Also, during the flogging, many times skin and muscle would just be ripped off the body because they would have the cat of nine tails with these bits of lead and glass or metal in them that would stick into the skin and just rip it out in chunks. So they look and stare at me. Or it could mean that, you know, all those around me just look and stare at me. It's a show for them. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And we know this never happened to David. These things did not happen to King David. His lots were never divided up and, you know, gambled for. For my clothing they cast lots, but we know that did happen of Jesus, that the Roman soldiers were at the foot of the cross casting lots because they didn't want to um, tear his robe, right? Because it was seamless. They're like, this is a good one. Let's gamble to see who gets it. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. My strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. And here on, on dogs from the dog and previously, um, you know, the dogs surround him. The power of the dog, what's the dog? Who's the dog? I would say it's the Gentiles, okay? In um, Deuteronomy 23, yeah, it's in verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And then here, save me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. In uh, Deuteronomy 23, 17 through 18, it likens the dog to a Gentile sodomite. A Gentile sodomite. And in Philippians 3, verse 2, it calls um, outsider the dogs, okay? Evil workers, workers of iniquity, speaking of, I believe, Gentiles. Okay? So anybody who's not a Jew... As a Gentile dog is what the Jews would say. So, okay, everybody say woof, woof. 
Actually, don't, because you know what? You are the church of the living God. There are three people groups. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and there's the church of the living God, according to the New Testament. We're no longer dogs. We are the church of the living God. Now, why would they be called dogs? Because they're just left to their instincts. Right? They're just left to do whatever they feel is right, whatever they want to do. We want to eat, sleep, fornicate, just fulfill the desires of our flesh. You know, my dog, she's kind of a fat dog, and she would never turn down a meal. She would never turn down a meal. She has no control. She's led by instincts. I remember one time she got out in the front yard, and I looked at her and said, Michaela, don't do it, because I knew what she was going to do. She was going to run down the street to the dogs down there and then get in the dumpster. Okay, and start seeing if there's any scraps around the dumpster, which is just gross. And so I'm like, don't even think about it. And she looks at me, looks down there, looks at me, looks down there, and then looks at me one last time and then takes off. She couldn't fight her desires. As God's church, as his people, we are to fight, to fight our fleshly desires. We are to put them to death, it says in Romans chapter 8. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. We have the spirit of the living God living and dwelling inside of us. And so what are we able to do? We're able to kill the deeds of the flesh. We are no longer led by our instincts. We're no longer led by our cravings. We are to be led by the spirit of God and by the word of God. We're to be led by this, not just by whatever we want. When we're grief-stricken and everything's just falling apart, what do we do? We give in? No. We submit to the Lord still. We submit to the Lord. Lord Jesus, you have died for me. You love me. You care for me. You are near to me, even if I don't perceive it right now. We take our minds, our feelings, and we bring them into subjection. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. I believe that's why the spiritual disciplines are so important. You have to practice them. You have to exercise those muscles. You have to take yourself and say, I'm going to submit to the Lord. I'm going to live by his word. I'm going to live by his word. So fasting is important. Deny your flesh what it needs, what it wants. Evangelism is important. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to be humbled when you evangelize. It's not, you know, when I first became a Christian, it's like, everybody's got to hear this good news. So I'm going out and telling everybody, and what, what do I find out? They all think I'm a nut job. They think Jordan's falling off the wagon. Talking about Jesus and God and the Bible and prophecy and all this stuff. And maybe I wasn't, you know, I wasn't very skilled and I was just very zealous. Zeal without knowledge, kind of, you look a little silly. But still, the world's going to think we're silly. The world's going to think we're foolish. Right? Practice the disciplines. Pray. Pray, 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 pray. Constantly. Read your Bible. Study it. Know it. But he says, deliver me from the sword... And who's holding that sword? I believe God is. It's, the, it's execution. The sword is the symbol of execution of uh, um, Romans 13. Help me wrestle. Uh, what's that? Yeah, from government. The government's ability to execute. And who's holding the sword over Jesus Christ? The Father is. In Isaiah 53, it says the Father's the one who crushed the Son. The, one, the father is the one who has killed him, executed him for us. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. My precious life is, it means only begotten. Deliver my only begotten from the power of the dog. That's how it's used, the only son it's used of Isaac, speaking of um, when Abraham's going to take Isaac up and sacrifice him in Genesis chapter 22. He's, take your son, your only son. That's the word that's used here. And the Septuagint 
That's monogenes, same word used for Jesus. The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? Whoever believes in the only begotten Son of God will not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. It means unique, special. And that's why it says precious. So precious is an excellent translation here. Deliver my precious life from the power of the dog. The old King James says, my darling, which has led some to believe he's speaking of the church. But it would fit as well, my darling. It's his precious life, my darling one. This life that God has given me, deliver it from the power of the dog. Look at verse 21. Save me from the lion's mouth. Who's the lion? Say of Satan, he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, if you are reading from a King James, it's going to say unicorn. Okay? It's going to say unicorn, which is a very interesting translation. But the, the Hebrew word is, is more of a bull, an, an extinct arrakis bull. Okay? And this was a massive bull. We have, you know, we go to the museum, you can see these things. And... Um, that's what it's speaking of here. That's the word that's used. It's this huge bull. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then it says, you have answered me. You have answered me. So imagine, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? And he prays all of this. And he lays his heart before God. And then finally he says, but you have answered me. And I think as far as Jesus Christ is concerned, God did answer him on the third day, raising him from the dead. Right? He raised him from the dead, defeated death and hell and sin. You have answered me, but have you ever prayed like this? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Right? Crying out to you all the time. But then all of a sudden, God shows up. He shows up, and it's done. Remember the disciples, they're in the boat. They, um, they're going across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was up on the mountain praying, and they're struggling against the waves and the wind all night long. All night long. They're struggling, and they think they're going to die. Right? They don't, probably don't even think they're going to make it to the other end. But then Jesus comes, and he's walking on the water. and it's, I think it's in Mark, he says, and he was going to pass by. They said, look, it's a ghost. Right? And they're all terrified. And he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then Peter, this one smart guy in the boat, said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. I believe because I'd rather be with Jesus than in a sinking boat. Right? Let me come out to you on the water. And he walks out there. And he gets scared. He goes under. Jesus pulls him out as he yells, help takes them back to the boat, and then it says, then they were at their destination. So imagine all night they are rowing against those waves. They don't think they're ever going to get there. Then it's the moment Jesus gets up, and the moment he gets into their boat, they're there. They're at their destination. So there was another miracle on that account as well. At the moment Jesus gets into their boat, they're at their destination. And that's how it is. You have answered me. I plead and I plead with God. I cry out to him and I cry out to him for certain things. But I know the moment he gets into my boat, the moment he puts his hand of blessing upon me, the work is done. The work is done. Or we're at our destination. We'll be reaching the city of Golden with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about just comfort, but about fruitfulness. And look what he does after. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You have answered me. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to praise you. And I have said over and over, the moment God moves us to the city of Golden, or puts us wherever he wants us to be, I'm going to have a worship service in that house, or trailer, whatever he wants to give, I'm fine with. But we're going to worship there. And everybody's going to come. And if you don't come... I'm going to guilt you, okay? Because we've been praying for this. And for anything that we pray for, when the Lord answers, we should be praising him. 
I will declare your name to my brethren. And this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ as well. Jesus said in John 17, 26, in his high priestly prayer, he says, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, speaking of his disciples. I have declared to them your name, and when I am raised, I'm going to declare it again. Right? And that's also quoted in Hebrews 9, or chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, which shows that this entire psalm is about Jesus, the Messiah. So I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Doesn't it amaze you when God hears your prayers? When you're pleading with him and crying out to him and, and he hears your prayers? I know that my voice was heard on high this morning multiple times. That gives me courage. It gives me rest. To know that my voice, my pleas has come before the Most High God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, who's over all things, outside of all things, outside of all eternity, all time, dwells in eternity. Verse 25, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. That's what we, again, what we should do. When the Lord answers our prayer, tell somebody, give somebody testimony of what Jesus has done in your life, how he's heard your prayers, how he showed you mercy and grace how he's been near to you. Tell somebody. Don't just keep it to yourself. You know, maybe the Lord leads you to do that sometimes. Mary took all these things, pondered them in her heart, right? But how would we know that unless she told somebody? You know, she eventually tells Luke as he's interviewing her, I just kind of took these things, I pondered them in my heart. You know, but tell somebody. And it says, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. We're the poor. Before Christ intercedes in our life, intervenes in our lives, we're poor. And we're poor now. We're poor and needy. But what do we do? When we go to that communion table, we eat, right? And we're satisfied. Not because of the bread and the juice, because it's like this big. <laughs> it's like a little thimble cup of juice. Because it proclaims to us what God has done that we belong in him, that he's paid for our sins, right? That he's, we have all the blessings in Christ, in Christ. All the promises of God are fulfilled in him, right? We've been adopted by him. We belong to him. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. I believe this is speaking of the thousand-year reign of Christ. You know, what is he going to do? He's going to come. He's, when he comes back after the great tribulation, he's going to separate sheep from the goats. It's going to be the judgment of the nations. Right? going to be the judgment of the nations and all the ends of the world ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and what did Jesus say Jesus said and if I am lifted up from the earth I will draw all peoples to myself if I'm lifted up from the earth on that cross I will draw all peoples to myself they will see how much love that God has for them they will see how abhorrable their sins are to a just and righteous God just by looking at the cross and he's going to draw all peoples to himself. That means peoples from everywhere. From everywhere. From all over the earth. Throughout thousands of years, he's going to draw people to himself. It says the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. They're going to remember. What does it say in Zechariah? I think it's chapter 12. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Right? When Jesus comes back, 
the Jews are going to see the one whom they have pierced. The Gentiles are going to see the one whom they have pierced. Right? And they're going to remember what it is he's done for them. And they will turn to him. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Every high valley or low valley is going to be lifted up. Every high mountain is going to be brought down to make a highway for our God so that all peoples from all nations can go to him and sacrifice before him, right? So they can all go and praise him, right? During the millennial reign of Christ. Verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. So you're going to have those who are going to be judged, and they're going to be given the kingdom, right? They're going to be allowed to stay on the earth during that time. But there are going to be those who are going to go down to the dust, to death. They cannot keep their, it says himself, but it's literally their ruach, their soul, alive. They can't keep their soul alive because God's going to execute them. Right? They're going to bow down before him. And so I've said this many times, there are two ways you're going to approach God when you meet him face to face. Right? When you see Jesus on his throne, you're going to come to him and you're going to bow before him in humble adoration and love and thanksgiving and praise. And then there are those who are going to bow before him in terror, in absolute terror, because they know that they have sinned against an all-holy, perfect God. And before they are thrown in the lake of fire, they will bow down, trembling. Right? Verse 30, a posterity will serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. Isn't that us? Are we not serving the Lord? Are we not recounting what he has done? Right? That's fulfilled in his church. Right? They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Or you could even say that it is finished. What it, was Jesus' last cry on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. So let's go out and declare. Let's go out and declare and declare what God has done. This, this passage has been given to you today. It's been given to me. Not to keep it for myself. Yes, ponder it in your heart for the rest of the week. But then show somebody. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to share this with somebody else. This is what you've been called to do. As a believer in Jesus Christ, to share God's love with others. Right? To share his love with others, people at work, with your family members, strangers on the street, in the coffee shop, wherever it is. I love my wife. You want to know why? Well, for lots of reasons. But one reason, she's, just, she's bold. She's not afraid. We're sitting at Bean Foster's one day. I still got time. We're sitting at Bean Foster's one day, and um, there's this couple who are talking and um, the girl's a Christian, she goes like Red Rocks or something, and the guy's this atheist, and he's given her all these reasons why he doesn't believe and why atheism's better, and she's just, she doesn't know, you know. She just hasn't been nurtured in the word of God, you could tell. And so my wife just goes over and says, hey, just, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you guys, but my, I just overheard some of your conversation. My husband's a pastor, he's right over there, and we'd love to talk to you about this. You have really good... Um, questions and observations and stuff, you know? And they were like, we weren't talking to you. <laughs> you know? So it didn't work out that good. But you know what? She took the chance to do so. How many times have we not taken the chance and then we kick ourselves for it? Man, it was right there. The Lord just had a blinking sign saying, evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. And we say, yeah, that's awkward, and we walk away. You know? Let's be bold. Let's hold each other to it, okay? So when God does something this week or in the weeks to come, be ready to tell somebody. Be ready to tell somebody, come in here. Tell me before. We're going to pray for you. 
We're going to pray for that person, okay, that you're going to be able to go out. That's why we prayed for Andy today, okay? He gets an opportunity just to say the name of Jesus, to give thanks to him in front of people who may not know him. He's going to be bold. And so we're going to pray that the Lord goes with him, right? The Spirit fills him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we believe it. Lord, you've given us prophecy so that we know that what you say is true. Lord, you've told us beforehand what's going to come to pass. Just as a witness, as a testimony to your, to your faithfulness. So, Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that we would believe it, every single part of it, that we'd act on it, place our faith in it, no matter what hard thing that we have to do to follow you. Please help, Lord. We are poor. We are needy. But you say those who wait on you will not be put to shame. We will eat and drink and we'll be satisfied. Lord, you're the only one who can satisfy us. We praise you, Jesus. We love you for the great work you've done on that cross. As we take communion, I pray that you would um, just enlighten our minds, Lord, by your word, by your spirit, to see what a great privilege we have in you. Jesus.